Why don't we open to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And we will start reading in verse 11. Luke 7, 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. As he, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. The words that start this story soon afterwards link it to the previous story of the centurion, and we also know that because when we get down later on, which we didn't read in verse 18 and following, it says the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. All of these things includes these two previous stories, and they really actually have a lot of similarities. In both stories, there is very deep need, and in both stories, Jesus intervenes. But really, what should strike us about these stories are the differences. In the story of the centurion, there is petition, and Jesus responds in petition, in in terms of petition. Here, there is no petition. There's no asking of the Lord to do anything. In the former story, Christ commends the centurion's great faith, but here we really don't find any great faith, do we? We really don't even hardly find any faith at all. All we find in this story is a lonely, broken woman. The former story exhorts us to faith in Christ, but the present story corrects the idea that Jesus is who he is. It corrects the idea that he is who he is, not based off of anything in us or our response, but he simply is who he is. He does not change in relation to who we are in terms of fundamentally being who and what he is. And we live in a world of needy people. And the thing about needy people is needy people are unpredictable. Uh, And they're unpredictable because their mood is generally determined by their circumstances. So I've talked with people that come from very difficult home situations that have said, I just didn't know what dad was going to be like when he came home. Why? Dad was needy. Things were going well, he was doing well. If things were not going well, he was not doing well at all. And this story is telling us, you take Christ at his word, which is the lesson from the previous story, but never get the idea that your actions are anything under the sun. Make him who he is. And that is so foundational to living the Christian life. So this morning, let's just take a little time here and look at Jesus. But to see him, we first need to see her. J.C. Rowell says, There is not an item in this whole story 
which is not full of misery. Notice the details very closely. Number one, she was a widow. According to the Old Testament, who are the two types of people that are particularly pitiful and to be pitied? Orphans and widows. And what do they have in common? In other words, how do you become an orphan? What do you lose? And how do you become a widow? What do you lose? Right. These are broken, lonely people. So the Bible can actually use the imagery of a widow to describe this. In Lamentations 1, 1 and 2, it says, How the lonely sit, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, how like a widow she has become, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheek. So this woman had already suffered great loss. But not only was she a widow, the Bible tells us that she had just lost the only son of his mother. Again, in the Bible, losing an only child is so painful that it's used to describe unbearable sorrow. For instance, in Zechariah 12.10, it says, They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over the firstborn. She had already spent nights weeping bitter tears over her husband. And now to that, she adds the bitter tears that she's weeping over her only son. And the Bible goes, it takes pains to emphasize that. And not only in all this, but there's a crowd that's watching. Notice this in verse 11, a great crowd comes with Jesus. In verse 12, there's a considerable crowd with her. And where do they meet? They meet at the city gate. If you know anything of the Old Testament, guess what happens at the city gate? Everybody gathers there. So probably anybody that wasn't in the great crowd or the considerable crowd was there at the gate. And so you need to see this picture. What you have is this massive crowd coming together and right in the middle of it is this broken, lonely woman. She is literally alone in a sea of people. But she isn't really alone, is she? As she is walking out and very likely in the very front of this procession, we read the wonderful words, He drew near. He drew near. And here we find one of the most significant words in the Bible, the word behold. We tend to think of the word behold kind of like we use the word um, which you, um, when you're trying to talk, you um, sometimes use it. What um means, literally translated, is please excuse me while I go find my lost thought. (laughs) Behold is not um. Behold is very significant. Behold means look right now. This is important. So Luke, Luke says, look right now. This is important. Behold, as she walks out, he walks in. On one side of the gate, you have life and immortality. On the other side of the gate, you have brokenness and loneliness and heartbreak. And these two meet, and Luke says, Behold, this is important. Look right there. And there are two reasons why Luke tells us to look precisely at that moment. The first reason is this, because Jesus' timing is perfect. It's perfect. 
Just like Abraham's ram, he arrives precisely at the right time. But we actually don't believe this. We believe perfect timing is what happened in the previous story with the centurion. In the previous story with the centurion, Jesus arrives and deals with the situation, it says, at the point of death. So right before the very last hour, Jesus steps in and saves the centurion's servant. In our mind, that's perfect timing. If we were running things, perfect timing would have had Jesus arriving hours earlier while there was still hope. But infinite wisdom and knowledge put Jesus at this gate at this precise moment. We think perfect timing always means rescue before the pain hits. We're like a kid who thinks that the most loving thing his parents could ever do would be to cancel all doctor's appointments for future shots. Like in their mind, I have one. In his mind, that is herein is love. Cancel the shot appointment. We think perfect timing always means rescue before the pain hits. But if you can hear this this morning, there is something better than always having the pain taken away. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17. And this is life. That's what we're talking about this morning. Life. That which is pure and good and what you're made for. The thing that has joy with no mixture of sorrow. Jesus says this. This is life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. One night, the kids and I received a report that there was a big meteor shower going on. So we went out and on my back porch, we had confirmed reports this is happening now. So we go out there and we can hardly see anything. Somebody tell me what the problem was. Clouds, Clouds? okay. That could be a problem. There's actually another problem. Trees. Help me out. Who said light? Thank you. It was light. We noticed, and you didn't know. Well, you don't usually notice it all night, but when you're really trying to see something like this, we noticed there's a, light, a lot of lights on. So I, immobili- I mobilized the troops, and we went through the house and turned off every trace of light that we could find. And then finally, we could see the meteor shower. There are some things that can only be seen in the dark that are much better than always having the lights on. And that's the way it is with this woman, and that's the way it is often in our life. There are things that are better than always being rescued from the pain. And that is knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God seems late and all traces of light start going out, look towards the heavens. God means to reveal more of himself to you. And that's exactly what happened here. And that brings us to the second reason. The reason why Luke says, behold, right as life and immortality is coming to this side of the gate and brokenness and loneliness and sorrow and heartbreak is coming from this side of the gate, right when they're about to meet, he says, behold, and it's for this reason, because this is a picture of what God did in the gospel. Here is this woman who is broken alone, and really what makes the loneliness hurts so much more 
is the memory that things were not always this way. And the knowledge that things should not be this way. You may remember the the text there in Ezra chapter 3, when they finally finished laying the foundation of the temple again, it says most people shouted for, for joy. They were so happy because this temple, even though it apparently wasn't as big as the last one, the foundation's laid and there's a start. And so all the young people are like, I mean, they're just shouting they're happy. But listen to what the Bible says. It says this. It says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. Why? Because the memory of what this thing should have been. The memory of what this thing should have been. The thing that made it so hard on this widow is that she had once known the companionship of her husband and she had that memory. And the thing that made it so hard on this mother is that she knew the joy of having an only child. She knew that these things were not supposed to be this way. And this is exactly the way that we enter the world. Exactly. We enter the world broken and alone with a sense that things should not be this way. Ecclesiastes 7 says this. It says, God made man upright, but he has sought out, so, he has sought out many schemes. So many people are miserable and nobody wants to face it. When we even start to look at our misery, we want to blame everything else. We want to look at everything else as the problem. There are some people say that if we could only, if we could only get Trump in, then things would be fine. There are other people who are saying if we could only get Trump out, there, then things would be fine. Or if I could only get this car, if I could only get my finances in order, if I could only get a little different job or we could rearrange things at my current job, if only my friends would start to treat me kindly, if only this person in middle school or high school would start to notice me, if only I could make this team or that team, if only I could get whatever the next thing is, then finally my problems would be solved. But the Bible says those are not your deepest problems. And that is not going to solve them. So many people get rich. They make the team. They finally get in the end crowd. They get whatever it was that everybody else is after. And they have the sinking sense that they finally arrived and it didn't solve their problem. Because our problem is not these little things, these little individual things. Our problem is that because of sin, we are broken, lonely people that are in a state we were not created to be. God made us upright, and we sought out schemes. That's the problem in the world today. But behold, look who is coming on the other side of the gate. Here comes life and immortality. And the very first thing we're told about Jesus is he sees. You see that? Don't read over the details. The details, the Bible never spares a word. Apparently it never even spares a letter. Because Paul says in Galatians 3.16, I'm not talking about seeds. I'm talking about seed. He makes a big deal about the letter. The Bible is never superfluous in details. And it says of Jesus that he, see, he saw her. A classic scene 
in movies is a person stranded on an island or in a boat or in an ocean or something frantically waving as a plane or another boat drifts by. And as that boat or plane gets about halfway through and now you can tell there, you know, there, there is absolutely no chance here. The person is wild, you know, they're wild and frantically waving. And you get this just sinking feeling in your stomach at the thought of being helpless and nobody sees you. Well, the first thing that we are told about Jesus is that he sees. He sees. God sees. The second thing we're told about this, not only does he see, but he is moved with compassion at our helpless state. He's not like the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember the story. They saw, right? They saw really well. They saw well enough to know, I better cross on the other side of the street to get around this guy so I don't have to mess with him. They saw, and it does you no good to be seen by someone who doesn't have compassion but we're told that he was moved with compassion. Jesus is not like the priest and the Levite. He enters the mess. The New American Standard translate this, the Lord saw her and felt compassion. William Hendrickson, a pretty well-known commentator, actually says he thinks the NIV is the best translation, which says his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. He's moved by looking on her in her helpless estate. And notice this. Remember the differences between these two stories. And the one before this, you have the centurion. You have great faith and a man that's going to take, take him at his word. But what this story is doing is correcting the idea that somehow man is the initiator in God's love. That somehow what happened was is that God looked down on man and after a couple of thousand years, men finally got together and decided, you know, we're a pretty rotten lot here. We should probably clean ourselves up. And people got cleaned up a little bit and God looked down and said, okay, now I'll send my son. That is not what this story is teaching. This story is teaching while you were a sinner, Christ died. While you were your worst God sent his son. His heart went out to her. Why? Because God is full of compassion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son while we were yet sinners. Look at the preciousness of this gift. In this story, there are actually two only sons Because God is compassionate. If God was not compassionate, there would only be one. But there's another only son on the scene. Because God is full of compassion. And not only has he seen, but he has moved in to the mess. So he sees, he has moved with compassion, and then he does something incredible. He does a couple of things incredible, but this is really incredible, especially if you know the Old Testament. He walks up and touches death. According to Numbers 19, he should have become unclean. If you touched a body or even went in the same tent as a body, it would render you unclean. But Jesus was doing this kind of stuff all the time. You know, you're not supposed to touch a leper either, but you all know these stories. Jesus is walking up, 
touching lepers, healing people on the Sabbath, doing all kinds of these things. And people are scratching their heads like, what is going on here? Who is this that can touch people that are unclean? And they don't become unclean, but the other person becomes clean. Who is this? Well, the one who sees and has compassion, the Bible specifically tells us here, is the Lord. When the Lord saw her, the Lord. You know, it's pretty significant that afterwards the crowd comments that a great prophet has arisen among us. And the reason why virtually everyone says that they're saying this is because of Elijah and Elisha. Those are the only people that we know of people in terms of people operating, you know, with um, under the power of the Lord, that had raised people from the dead. And the similarities are actually very striking. In the case of um, Elisha and Elijah, a son is raised back up to life. And particularly in the case of Elijah, it specifically says, and he gave him back to his mother. So there's a lot of similarities here. But for all of the similarities, there are some very, very profound differences. If you go back and read those stories in... 1 Kings and 2 Kings, what you read is this. In both cases of Elijah and Elisha, they're pleading, they're prostrate on the ground, doesn't work, so they go back again. I think it's Elisha sends his staff, that doesn't work, he has to go. They're pleading some more. Then in one case, the boy gets a little bit warm, so they do it some more. And finally, the boy is raised to life. But this is very, very different. That is not what you do when you're the Lord. When you're the Lord, there is no pacing around, there's no stretching out prostrate, and there's not even any praying. Jesus just speaks. I say to you, young man, arise. And what does it say? The dead man sat up and began to speak. That's what happens when you're the Lord. When you're the Lord, you can enter the mess in compassion, but you're above the mess. When you're the Lord, you can touch death and not become unclean, but death itself is reversed. He's the Lord, and He can speak a word into a helpless, hopeless situation, and life can come forth. So this morning, would you believe on Jesus? Have you seen your helpless state? your hopeless state? Have you come to the place where you are finally ready to stop thinking that if I just get X or if Y just changes, I will finally be happy? Are you finally ready to settle on the fact that your real problem is sin? And because we are slaves to sin, we are like this broken woman. We are helpless and alone. But we're not totally alone because there is a God who sees. And the God who sees is a God of compassion. And that compassionate God, He is the Lord. And He can speak a word into your life and dispel all the hopelessness and make you a new creation and give you a reason to live. If you come to Jesus this morning, you will be just like this dead boy. You will sit up, life will enter, and you will begin to speak. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As J.C. Rowell says, He lives who made the widow's heart (laughs) sing for joy. 
in name. He lives. Let's pray. Lord, I think of that hymn that we used to sing when I was growing up. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Lord, and there may be people here that feel like they can't face tomorrow. And I pray that you, Lord, would give them a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus this morning. That there's the reason to live. Would you come and help by your spirit? In Christ's name, amen.